Amen, and thank you, Peter, worship team. Already a great gathering of God's people worshiping together. Well, would you open up your Bibles with me to 1 John chapter 2? Once we get going, that's where we'll be setting out from. Uh, but just want to remind everybody, uh, particularly members of Grace Church, that tonight we have a congregational meeting, a special congregational meeting at 6 p.m. Um, in here. We'll be voting on uh, some different matters related to the hiring of our new associate pastor, Joseph Yu, who will start in December. So uh, it will be a brief meeting, I think. And, uh, but it's important that uh, as many members as are able can commit to come tonight. Uh, just when we want to ensure we have a quorum for that. Uh, so um, kids are welcome to come because it will be brief. Uh, but if that's not an option, uh, we ask at least one spouse of families to be able to commit to come out tonight. That'll be 6 p.m. here in the sanctuary. Uh, everyone will be wearing masks and we'll maintain distancing with that um, as well. But um, I will spare us all an awkward joke about how our voting process is secure and sure and there will be no uh, shenanigans happening. But Maybe that is a not-so-smooth segue to just say a couple things before we start our sermon this morning, uh, that we are nine days away, and a storm's coming, and we need to understand that, and with Election Day on the horizon, in some ways it feels like you, you see the clouds kind of coming in if we're not already in it already, and all I know at this point is that I don't know a whole lot. Um, not only talking about who's going to win, but I think even more importantly, how is this country going to react on the other side of this election day? And even more importantly, to my own heart, how are Christians going to act and react on the other side of this Christian uh, this election day? And so um, fun, one thing I've been saying, you know, really ever since the last presidential election, it's the same for now, will be the same for presidential elections. If I'm here for another 50 years, Lord willing, is that I want to encourage our church to study the issues, to pray for wisdom, and to vote your conscience, and to understand that fellow brothers and sisters in Christ across the world, across the country, and even in our own church are going to vote differently and their conscience is going to lead them to vote for one or the other or neither, and that's okay. Vote your conscience, submit your ballot, many of you already have, you've mailed it in, and then stay focused on all of our primary's mission to glorify God by making disciples. And as Christians, we can care about this election, but we're not to fear this election, amen? Like, we can care, but, but we cannot fear. We should not fear. And, and we just want to affirm, and we talked about this in the church and politics class that we started this past week, um, that what is happening in our churches, what is happening in Grace Church is far more important and of lasting value than what is happening in our country. They're, they're both important, un, absolutely yes, but they are not of equal importance. Do you know what I mean? Like, like, the government is a steward of policy of a kingdom that is passing away. We talked about that last week. This world is passing away. And the church is a steward of the gospel of a kingdom that will go on forever. And brothers and sisters in Christ, I just want to say this with everything I can to you this morning. You have more in common with a brother and sister in Christ who votes the opposite way as you do than you have with a non-believer who will vote the same way. And so one thing I'm going to commit to, uh, to do this week, and I want to encourage and challenge you to join me, is to pray for three things every day this week. 
Okay, so if you're taking notes or write this in your phone, three things I would love for everybody at Grace Church to pray for, even if it's briefly every day this week leading up to next Tuesday. Number one, pray for yourself. Pray for yourself and your own heart in this. Understand where you get angry. Understand where you get impatient or frustrated with others. Pray for your own heart and mind this upcoming week. Secondly, pray for our church. Pray for for Grace Church that we would um, not sacrifice our witness based upon what happens or doesn't happen nine days from now. Pray for our church and our witness that we would stand strong in the gospel, partnered in gospel ministry, unified in what God is doing here at our church, regardless of what might happen or what might not happen next week. That's number two. And then number three, pray for our country. Pray for our country that, um, that God would uh, protect our country from, um, from going off the rails. Pray for people on both sides. Pray for this entire nation every day this week. And let's just trust it to the Lord that we are in the midst of a great challenge. But what I try to remind myself, what our staff tries to remind ourselves of, is that every great challenge is also a great opportunity. And that's not just a one-liner, catchy, self-help phrase, but okay? That is biblical. Every challenge is also an opportunity when looked at in the right way. And I just care deeply that the Christian witness would not diminish in this time, but would strengthen but that it would strengthen. So let me just briefly pray for a couple of those things now, and then we'll get into First John. Father, we thank you for uh, the opportunity to pray, Lord. I thank you even for um, uh, Peter just really um, welcoming, ushering us into a time of congregational prayer, of confession, of dependence upon you, of um, interceding for one another and for uh, people outside of our church, including our country's leaders on both sides of the aisle. And I just pray for our church. Lord, I pray that you, would sh- that you would allow us to be as bright of a witness as we have ever been in this community, Lord, and that we would just be faithful to what you've called us to, focused on the call to, um, to make disciples, Lord, and that that is not contingent upon anything that happens in this world um, because the church... Uh, nothing will prevail against it. Lord, that is a promise you have given, and I pray that we cling to. And I just thank you, Lord, that you have given us now an opportunity to show our witness of a, a Christian faith and life that points to you and glorifies your name above all things, Lord. And so I pray, Lord, that even in our, in our careful convictions that we would not be moved to fear in this time. And let that be seen and known, and not for our glory, but for your glory alone. In the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. All right, well, in the year 1817, at the age of 12, a young man named Joe moved with his family from Vermont to western New York to a town that's um, today called Palmyra. It's about a four-hour drive from Ridgewood. And at the time, again, early 19th century, this rural area of western New York was home to these religious revivals uh, that were associated with the Second Great Awakening. And, And Joe got caught up in one of these revivals. His family did. His family became members of a a local Bible preaching church in western New York all through his teen years to adulthood. And at age 18, Joe was unsettled in his church in his Bible preaching church. 
And he said he received a vision at age 18 from an angel that directed him to a buried book of golden plates that would contain a Judeo-Christian history of this ancient American civilization that was long forgotten. And he would return back to this mountain every year until he was directed to, at age 24, to write the English translation of these golden plates. You know what that book was called? The Book of Mormon. That same year, Joe organized a church called the Church of Christ. Later, it would be renamed as the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. This Joe, of course, is Joseph Smith. And when he died in 1844 at the young age of 39, he had at that time already gained tens of thousands of followers. But since then, Mormonism has now grown to become 15 million members worldwide. The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is a modern-day prime example of the fact that the most dangerous heresies across church history are the ones that seem closest to the truth. Many Christians today, unfortunately, would still say that Mormons are fellow believers and brothers and sisters in Christ, despite the fact that they do not believe there is one God in three persons, but there's three separate gods, Father, Son, and Spirit. They don't believe Jesus was eternal, but that he was created as a God. And not only that, but we humans could become gods someday as well. Not to mention that they don't believe that salvation is a free gift of God's grace through faith alone in Jesus Christ. But today, right now, 2020, there's a 15 million member church that finds its root in a single, young, 18-year-old man who had grown restless in his Bible-preaching local church about four hours from here, and who began to teach something opposed to the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's one example of many of why the passage we're going to dig into this morning matters so much, because we see ripples of fact happening in our midst, in our country today. That right belief in the true God of the Bible matters. That belief is not relative. There's not a spectrum of salvation. There's not a general arena of truth. It doesn't matter which section you're sitting in. But there's one way to the Father, and it's through the person and work of the divine Son, Jesus Christ. And and church, we're in a moment. I almost don't even have to say this, but I mean, I I don't know exactly how 2020s can be written about in history books years from now, centuries from now, millennia from now. But it will be talked about as, I think, the perfect storm of intensity. There's one word this year. It's just been so intense that I think has and will continue to shape every area of our society. Where everything, if there's one word I feel like I've started to heard more and more and more amongst uh, certainly Christians, but really even beyond people in the church, it's the word heavy. This year has just been heavy. A global pandemic a hostile election year, racial tension. And we could go on and on, but it's just tensions, tensions that threaten unity, that threaten peace, where truth is under attack. We don't even know what truth is anymore, what to believe, what to fact check. Truth is just feel like that's become relative and not understanding how to discern truth from falsehood. If you follow our podcast at Grace Church called Grace Extended, we did the first episode of a new season this past week, an episode on truth. 
that Chrissy Scarpa joined Steve and I to talk about, if you want to listen to that, but discerning God's truth, because wherever there's intensity, there's a high potential for division. And we're going to see in our passage this morning that there is some real division in the churches that John is writing to. Churches are splitting. People are leaving. Fellowship is being broken. Unity is in danger. And they're appealing to John, what are we supposed to do? What is happening right now? Why are people leaving? Everything just feels heavy. And so this is the tense climate that John will speak into that I think we should pay a special attention to this morning. And he's going to give this pathway to understanding these times and then speaking into these times. Here's the pathway, then we'll take them one at a time. Recognize, discern, affirm, abide. If you didn't get them, we're going to go through them one more at a time. But let's start by reading 1 John chapter 2. We're going to be going verses 18 to 27, but we're going to start now with just verse 18. Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. Number one, recognize First stop on the pathway John's going to provide, recognize. Recognize what? That it is the last hour. He starts this section. John does this throughout the letter. He kind of breaks his, uh, his, his uh, frames of thought with the word children. It's kind of his segue, his kind of reset. He says children. We see the term again. Reminder, John's the last living apostle. He's probably in his 80s at this time. So he's addressing a church that he loves like a grandfather loves a grandchild. Children, it is the last hour. It is John's way of saying we're in the final days. So this was written almost 2,000 years ago. Should we take this to think that John was mistaken? That John thought that Christ's return was imminent in his day? It was going to happen any day? No, because I think the phrase, the last hour doesn't indicate time, but it indicates a stage of redemptive history. Let me unpack that. Hang with me. That last hour meant that God has already spoken the final word in the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's what Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 says, that Jesus was the final word. Meaning for the church today, there's no new teaching yet to be revealed. So John is saying that the last hour has come, meaning that Jesus has already died, he's already rose from the dead, and he's already ascended into heaven, and all that is left to happen is for Jesus to return. And while John does not know when Jesus will return, and nobody knows when Jesus will return, despite the just obsession with people talking about the final days and all the signs of revelation connected to everything that's happened in the current events and everybody has a date in mind, never believe that. John does not say he knows when Jesus will return, but he does affirm that Jesus could return at any time. It could be tomorrow, or it could be 10,000 years from now. 2 Peter 3, verse 8 says, But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. God doesn't view time as we view time. God is outside of time. So the last hour means the days between Christ's ascension and then Christ's return. That is the last hour. We are still in the last hour. And it does not predict timing, but it does emphasize urgency. 
Let me say that another way. John is not giving um, or predicting Jesus' return at an exact moment, but he's emphasizing that the church should live in light of the fact that Jesus could return at any moment. A church that understands this will have a sense of spiritual urgency, will have a, a readiness in the church, and part of that readiness is, back to verse 18, recognizing that it's the last hour that many antichrists will come. All right, so let's talk about that. What's the Antichrist? The word Antichrist only occurs in John's epistles, although Paul refers to the same person as the, quote, man of lawlessness. The book of Revelation speaks of a visible human representation of Satan himself who will arise in the end times just before Christ's return, that there is a singular Antichrist. And John says, you have heard that he is coming. But then the second part of verse 18, John says, while there is an antichrist coming, there are also many antichrists who are coming now. Meaning that these are precursors to the final antichrist. And this is how we know it's the last hour. Antichrist, literally, this is not blowing any minds, against Christ. Anyone who teaches against the true Christ. Antichrists are false teachers. They're false teachers that expose themselves in their teaching and who seek to lead others astray. So let's piece this first point together. The first point is recognize. What are we to recognize? One, church, the time that we're in. It's the last hour. Grace Church, Christ could return at any time. So don't get caught sleeping. A sleepy, kind of flat-lined Christian should be an oxymoron. It should not make sense to us. And so John's literally saying to the church then, I think he's saying to the church now, wake up. Understand the times. Take a look around. Be ready. This is not designed to strike fear into us. Maybe it does. Maybe when you think about end times, you think about eternity, maybe that strikes fear. But I think rightly understood, it's meant to motivate A church that recognizes the times will be more motivated to make disciples, not less so. So recognize the time we're in, and then recognize the threat of false teachers to stand against Christ. The enemy is trying to draw us away, is trying to distract us, is trying to distance us from true, true teaching in however, uh, however way he can. Maybe it's just to make you really busy. Maybe it's to make your life so busy that you're like, you just don't have time to pay attention to right teaching versus wrong teaching because work and family and spontaneous or, or you know, extracurricular activities and everything's happening. You just don't have time. The enemy loves that. The enemy loves a busy Christian who gets sleepy. And he doesn't loves nothing more than a sleepy church that is irrelevant in the days that it exists, who then could be easily led astray by false teaching because they weren't paying attention. So what do we do in these times? Number one, recognize. Let's keep going. Let's read verses now 19 to 23. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might become plain that they are all not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you, 
not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Number two, second stop on the path is discern. Discern. Specifically, he's talking about discerning who are the false teachers. How can you spot a false teacher? John gives us three ways to spot a false teacher to discern. Number one, they separate from faith community. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. It seems to me that John is speaking to a church that is hurting right now because a major division has occurred and the church has split. And if anyone in here or anybody watching has been a part of a church split, it's a hard thing. It it could be a gut-wrenching thing. And so I think he's speaking pastorally to them because they're wondering, what is going on? Why are people leaving? I don't understand this. It seems that people who used to be part of the church were maybe even professing believers, maybe at one time even faithful teachers, are now beginning to teach and be led astray by a false gospel. False teaching that comes from within a church is the most dangerous kind of false teaching. It typically starts small, just a slow drift from faithful, orthodox gospel truth that then begins to grow over time, and then it begins to get a following within the church, and then it begins to divide the church, and eventually it splits the church. I talked about it with Mormonism. It's one example how the most effective and dangerous heretical teachings across the last 2,000 years of church history are the ones that are closest to the truth. Think about it. Um, Commentator David Allen made this point by saying that when it comes to counterfeit money, if you're looking to do counterfeit money, you would never see any fake $3 bills in existence. Why? If that was your plan, not getting very far. No one has ever gotten fooled by a fake $3 bill. Why? Because there's no real $3 bills. So it's so far-fetched that it wouldn't be effective. No, you counterfeit the ones that are closest to the truth. You counterfeit the true bills. Does anyone know what's the most counterfeited bill in the United States? The $20 bill. The $100 bill is more valuable, but it's not as commonly used. Ones, fives, and tens are more commonly used, but they're not as valuable. So counterfeiters, counterfeiters have long recognized that the $20 bill is the sweet spot. The sweet spot of value and common use. And that's just an example of false teaching in the church. It's the ones that are most commonly can be distorted in the church, can be closest to the truth. That leads to church division. We don't know that this, if this church John is writing to, if the, if, if, if the church kicked them out, or if they just gained enough of a following that they just left to start maybe their own church. But either way, it seems a lot of people are gone. And what John said, and this is important, he said, listen, these men and women, they didn't lose their faith. They proved and were exposed to the fact that they never had true faith to begin with. They went out from us because they were never of us. 
One pastor put it this way, that profession doesn't automatically mean possession. Just because someone professes to be a Christian does not mean that they're actually Christians. Which is why John is providing all these tests we've been seeing in 1 John. The test of obedience, the test of assurance, and now the test of right belief. They went out from us because they were never of us. Because if they were really of us, they would have continued with us. And then he contrasts false teachers with those remaining in the church, assuring them by the, uh, uh, the presence and the affirmation of the Holy One, which is John's phrase, the Holy Spirit that indwells them, that the Holy Spirit is affirming to them, you already know the truth. He's battling this Gnostic teaching. Remember Gnosticism we talked about in week one? That they had this claim of secret knowledge. There's this secret knowledge that they had access to, kind of like Joseph Smith with Mormonism. And John's saying, there is no secret knowledge. Everything that has to be known has already been revealed. Remain in it. So that's the first thing. They separate from faith community. Number two, they separate from truth. Verse 22, who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? So here John makes crystal clear for us what makes a false teacher a false teacher. It's he who denies that Jesus is the Christ. I agree and understand that Christianity and belief and where do we stand here and where are we on this issue and how should we react with that or this can get very confusing. You're like, as a Christian, I should know all these different things and I struggle to know all the different things. But at the core of it, there is a stunning simplicity to discern whether someone has the right belief to be a Christian. It's the answer to the question, who is Jesus? It's a stunning simplicity. With all the complexity and discussion, it all boils down to that. It starts there. Who is Jesus? This is what Jesus asked his disciples on the road to Caesarea in Matthew 16. He says, who do people say that I am? And they give all these different answers. Well, some are saying John the Baptist. Some are saying Jeremiah. Others are saying another prophet. And then Jesus doesn't even address those answers. He then asks them directly, guys, who do you say that I am? It's the most important question. It's the most important question in the world, and I promise that's not an overstatement to make a point. Eternity hangs in the balance for each person based upon their answer to that question. And while it is possible to know the right answer but not actually believe it in your heart, it's not possible to be a Christian without knowing who Jesus is and what he's done. So any time a teacher takes away from the person or work of Jesus, whether one denies that he is the eternal Son of God incarnate in the flesh, or one denies that he's fully man and fully God, or if one denies that he's perfect in every way and that he's the atoning sacrifice of sin for all who believe, or if someone denies that it's Christ alone that saves and not Christ plus something else, if they do any of those things, they expose themselves. They're antichrists. They're false teachers. They separate themselves from the truth. And the the stakes could not be possibly higher than this is. And yet, what we have find, that many Christians don't really care about doctrine. Or don't really care about the the threat of false teachers. And they care about other things in the world far more. They profess to be Christians, but they care more about politics or they care more about sports, or work, or money, or sex. 
Number two, they separate from truth. Number three, third way to discern a false teacher is they separate the father and the son. Verse 22, the second half. This is the Antichrist, he who denies the father and the son. No one who denies the son has the father. Whoever confesses the son has the father also. The third way to discern a false teacher is when you separate God the Father and God the Son. It denies the exclusivity of Jesus Christ. What's that mean? What's the exclusivity of Jesus Christ? It means that we believe there is one way to salvation. There is one way to be reconciled to our Creator. And it's through repentance of sin and faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And no one who denies that, who denies the Son, will have the Father. Again, he's battling against Gnostic teaching that muddied the waters on Jesus, that was just in the earliest roots here, but would ravage the church for the next three to four hundred years. That would largely be the reason why the church had to start to form councils to hash this out, out of which came some pretty famous creeds, like the Nicene Creed, the Apostles' Creed. But those creeds are merely meant to discern what Scripture plainly tells us, like Jesus himself in John 14, when Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. This was written 2,000 years ago, and it's still so relevant today. If you ask a non-believer, What's your biggest issue with Christianity? Have you asked people in your life that? What's the biggest issue you have with Christianity? People's honest answer would be, why does it have to be so exclusive? Isn't it kind of arrogant and ignorant to claim there's only one way to God and you know the way? But separating the Father from the Son it's not merely an historical problem. It's a, quote, last hour problem, and we're still in the last hour, which is why it's still a problem. It's still something we need to address. It's still a false teaching that ravages the church, that leads people to, to eternal damnation, even those who might profess to be believers. You know, over the summer, there's a member who, who's here this morning who shared with me a, a study from Ligonier Ministries of a survey they did, and they do every other year since 2014, um, of, of asking Americans and then asking professing Christians uh, the same questions about just theology and where do they, what their answers to certain theolo theological things. So if you want to look it up, it's Ligonier Ministries, the State of Theology. Let me share a couple snapshots of this study that was just done this year. 30% of professing believers in the United States agreed with the statement that Jesus was a great teacher but was not God. That's one in three. 20% of professing believers agree that science has already disproven the Bible. 46%, this is nearly half of professing Christians, believe that everyone sins a little, but people are generally good by nature. And then 42% of professing believers agreed with the statement that God accepts the worship of all religions including Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. They've been doing these studies every other year since 2014, and those numbers rise every two years. 
exposing how many Christians are not willing or able to or have not been taught well how to discern truth, how to spot false teaching. And as each generation rises and those percentages increase, that's a problem. All right, we got to pick up the pace here. We got two more stops on the pathway. They will be quick, I promise. 1 John chapter 2, verses 24 and 25. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. Third stop on the path. We have recognize, we have discern. Now number three, affirm. John says, affirm what you've heard from the beginning, meaning from the time that people in these churches became a Christian and started on this path. And he says, let it abide in you, and we'll get to that word abide in a second. But first he says, affirm to that which you already know. Again, you're not in need of something new. You're not in need of a new secret knowledge. Don't be hunting down for new knowledge. It might feel exciting, like you're on the chase to figure something out, but it will always lead to a dead end. Rather, affirm that which you already know, that you are united in Christ and in the Father. Because to have Jesus is to have God. Because Jesus is God. And there's while you separate the persons, you don't separate the uh, divine wills or desires of either. One God in three persons. And you, church, are united with Christ. Union with Christ is the most assuring doctrine in the church that often gets neglected. That you are no longer just you. You are you in Christ. The world says, just be who you are. The church says, be who you are in Christ. Affirm along with the Apostle Paul that it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And to be united with Christ is to say that nothing shall separate us from the love of God. And the promised result of this unity is eternal life. That in Christ we receive the quality and the quantity of eternal life. The quality of eternal life, meaning the full presence of God. And that, that begins at salvation. Eternal life doesn't start the day you die. Do you know that? Eternal life does not start the day you die. It starts the day that you die in your flesh and become alive in Christ. It's quality of eternal life that you can experience right now. But then it is also the quantity that there will be no end. Have you ever pondered eternity? Have you ever thought about the foreverness of forever? Because here's the thing. Here's why the Bible talks so much about it. The more you consider eternity, the less fearful we are about the here and now. And ironically, the less fearful we are in the here and now, the more effective we will be in being the salt and light of the church in the here and now. All right, we got one stop left. Let's finish the passage, verses 26 and 27. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you, but the anointing that you received from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. 
But as his atoning teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. Fourth stop, final stop, abide. Recognize, discern, affirm, and abide. John's heart for this church, again, like a grandfather to grandchildren, is simply this, to help the people of God and keep them from being deceived. And this very warning shows us it's possible to be deceived. Let us not get too prideful in that which we know and in our maturity that we think that we are beyond the point of being able to be deceived. Satan is a cunning enemy, and at all times, this is his one aim in life. Everything he does is to do this in every Christian's life, in every church's life, to do what he can to break fellowship, break fellowship between you and God, and break fellowship between people within the same church. You know, especially around times of election, um, an election in a country, you, you hear a lot of talk about how churches should fear ideologies that seek to uh, limit or maybe even eliminate religious freedom. That if you vote for this candidate, say goodbye to the church, right? That if this law passes or this Supreme Court justice goes through, churches are doomed, Christians will be persecuted, and there's always a lot of talk about that. And, and hear me, I'm not doubting that there's truth in that. I, regardless of who wins this election, I think we are on a path of limited religious freedom in our, for churches and Christians in our country. I think that's coming. I think that's going to keep coming no matter who wins. And I don't doubt that there are people and groups and platforms that want to do everything they can to limit the rights of churches to preach the gospel. But even if that's true, to the extent that people say it's true, hear me very clearly. Still, the biggest threat that every church faces is still from within its own ranks. It's not hostile opposition that comes from outside the church. It's division and false teaching coming from inside the church. That is Satan's greatest weapon. That is his greatest desire. And so we need to be careful that we should be discerning and winsome of things that are happening outside these walls, but we should not overlook this church, or churches should not overlook themselves that have their eyes so fixated on the world that they're missing what's happening in its own ranks. And he warns, he says, the truth you have is the truth you need, so nobody needs to teach you. In context, John is, is not saying that there's no need for Christian teachers because he's teaching this right, to them. Right? So that would just fall on itself. That was his argument. And we know all throughout Scripture the need for godly, faithful teachers to, um, amongst the people of God. So he's not saying you never need any teaching. He's saying you don't need anything new. When you have the Spirit, you don't need to look for new information, new knowledge, there is simply the knowledge of the gospel that you've heard from the beginning and that has been spoken in word and sealed in spirit. Stay in the truth you already have. Let that produce something in you, which leads to the final phrase, and this is really it, finally this morning, the one command he gives, the direct command of this whole passage he ends with, the last three words, abide in him.
This command is an oasis in the desert for thirsty, tired Christians. This command is for the churches who are splitting, where the people are leaving, where fellowship is being broken. This is the pastoral, grandfatherly advice from John to those desperately asking, what are we supposed to do in these heavy times? Where do we go from here, John? Is this the end? And to those questions, John says, abide in him. It's a perfect word in a timely moment. And let us not lose the word abide in our modern vocabulary. To abide is to accept truth, to submit to it, and then walk in it. To abide is to accept truth, to submit to it, and then walk in it. Abide stands at the crossroads of right belief and right living, where Christ becomes the center of all our thoughts and all our actions. And when we abide in Christ, we have our eyes fixed on Him, there's nothing in our lives that gets blocked from Him. There's no room in our lives where the door is locked. It's when Christ has open access, and that's where peace occurs. It's when we're done hiding from Him. It's where we become unmasked, to use a modern word. And we just are who we are in Christ. Let's pray. Father, I pray that that finishing note on this passage in this sermon would be that which rings through our ears, especially over the next nine days, Lord, that you have called us to abide in you, to surrender it all to you, to accept the truth, your truth that you speak over us, and to walk in it accordingly. Father, give us the courage, and I mean that, Father, give us the courage to abide. And allow your, your name to get all the glory. Use us as your vessels in whichever way you want to use us as we abide in you, Lord. Keep us in your truth. Keep this church in your truth so that we can continue to be the salt and light you've called us to be. In the name of your son, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Mm-hmm.